Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and thank you for joining me for show 26 with the wonderful nutritionist Steph Lowe today. We're going to be having a great chat around nutrition and how it relates to the way we move, also how it relates to various goals we have or challenges we're experiencing in our health and the power of food. And she shares some really fantastic examples. And, you know, if, if you're someone who uh, really is keen to optimise the movement you do do, then you'll be fascinated to learn that there are even different ways to eat on different days where you move different ways. So like whether you do a super sweaty yoga class or a really gentle restorative practice or whether you do heavy lifting weights or a marathon, you really don't want to be eating the same way for any of those things in terms of what you have to refuel and your blood sugar can cope with different things depending on the different type of exercise you do as well. So it's a really interesting chat. Also not only focused on exercise, but the power of food in general to make you feel your best self. So I hope you enjoy the show. I just wanted to remind you that we have the wonderful partner this month, Republica Organic. And they are offering us a huge 25% off on their website, republicaorganic.com.au. If you use the Lotox Life, all in caps, all one word, coupon in the checkout, I will pop, of course, as I did last week, all of that information in the show notes uh, so that you can make the most of the coffee from their beautiful range or, of course, from a major supermarket near you. And when I was thinking about a little something I wanted to share that was really exciting about their brand, and remember, it's always about, I would never share a brand or have a, a, a supporter that is just to fill space and cover some of the costs of running a podcast. No, no. I reach out to people, not the other way around, Most of the, almost all of the time, in fact, because I want to work with people who... I have vetted, I have screened, and the beauty of working with Republica is, of course, as I said last week, it's a good friend of mine, Jacqueline Arias, who's the inspirational founder of the range. Now, so when I was thinking about what I wanted to share, I asked uh, Jacqueline and her team if they could share with me a story about one of the many places the coffee they buy comes from, the beans. And so they sent through this beautiful story of Quito Tapizi, which is a coffee farming community in the East Highlands of Papua New Guinea. And it's really, really gorgeous. So I just want to share just for a minute a couple of beautiful things about this place and this incredible organisation what they've been able to do. So the organisation comprises of farmers from 18 villages, eight clan groups, different tribes, different languages. But what unites them is the belief in the high standards. They're so proud of what they produce and their satisfaction in seeing the benefits from being part of a fair trade market, which they've been since 2010. And it reaches four and a half thousand people in the local community, the benefit of this work that these 3,000 farmers do. So not just them, but their family as well and other people outside of them. That's not counting them. And in its first year as part of Fair Trade, Quito Tapizi sold a modest 8.5 metric tonnes of green bean coffee to its exporter. But by the end of the following year, that quantity had increased to 42.7 metric tonnes. Isn't that crazy? It's almost six times uh, the size. So, and, and this is increasing since. So what they've been 
been able to do is use those funds from the fair trade premium to acquire 11 new coffee pulpers to help with processing. They've built new warehouses to store the coffee. They've been able to hire vehicles to transport their coffee from members' gardens to the processing mill to increase productivity and output. The farmers are planning to invest in future fair trade premiums and tackling high levels of illiteracy among adults. So often we think of fair trade as as helping families support their children to not have to work and to be able to go to school. And of course, that's a huge part of what uh, buying fair trade means. But we often forget the adults that have grown in poverty uh, who have never had an education themselves who are still illiterate and what an education can do for them as adults. And It's just a really beautiful thing. So basically the investment means it's also going to allow them to provide more formal education into the future and better health services. They're doing a lot more education around the risks of HIV and AIDS and how best to treat a variety of conditions that challenge their communities. So it's really, you know, when you're buying fair trade, yes, you know, we think of it as a no-brainer, a a thing to do when we're a conscious-minded consumer. But when we go deep into the grit of what that represents, when we take the time to hear about a community like the Keto Topizi Association of those 3,000 farmers and, and really like when you're picking that product up off the shelf or clicking buy online... It really brings it to life for you when you have that coffee in the morning. You're thinking, "Wow, that's that's those people that I can I can feel that I'm a part of the change for a really special community." And I urge anyone out there to get a few friends together because you'll notice when you buy online, you have to buy six packs of the coffee, and whether you're buying the instant or whether you're buying the biodegradable pods or the beans themselves the signature blend because you have a grinder at home or the already ground um, the already ground variations, you have to buy six when you buy online. Now, you've got a fantastic price having 25% off, so why not get a couple of friends in on it with you and have two each of something and um, pay for one lot of postage, so that's a great thing. You're also saving on food miles by having one thing sent one place. Then it gives you all an excuse to catch up, which means we connect more with our friends that mean something that we love, which is better for our mental health. So like, you know, buying in bulk can be a beautiful thing. And I remember a great example of this is when I run my Go Low Tox course and people discover a couple of ways that you can save to be low tox, but not have it break the bank. And one of my favorite things is buying bulk toilet paper from Who Gives a Crap. And you guys will know that I interviewed Simon a a few shows ago. Um, So please check that interview out. And who gives a crap is fantastic. So what happens in the course is, you know, there'll be at least 15 people from Brisbane doing the course, let's say. And so someone will put their hands up to say, look, I'm going to buy the biggest box of who gives a crap, who wants to get together, have a coffee, talk about the course, what we've learned so far, what we're finding exciting, challenging, whatever. And people start divvying up toilet paper and taking pictures of their, like the boot with everyone loading up the bags. They're really gorgeous. So why not do it with your coffee as well and make another excuse to actually connect with beautiful beautiful people in your life that you haven't seen for a while and urge a couple of friends outside of you. What a beautiful way to affect a mini amount of change, but yet so important to say, hey guys, I found this fantastic organic fair trade coffee. Why don't you come be a part of it too? And um, and we'll split the costs. So there we go. Uh, enjoy today's show with Steph. I really loved this chat and I, I hope you do too.
Hello, Steph Lowe. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm really good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's so great to have you on my show. I've been on your show a few times. So I was excited to, to just to share with people a lot more about you, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about the chat we're going to have today. Now, I guess I would love to start somewhere a little bit left field. If you could think about everything that you love to teach and show people from everything that you've learned and know so far, what would that be? Yeah, uh, great question. I think in terms of nutrition, my answer is still going to be quite simple because I do love showing people how easy real food can be, whether that is, you know, changing over their family's, you know, meal plan or pantry or learning to cook really healthy and nutrient-dense meals. You know, the the larger belief is that it's, you know, time-consuming, expensive, challenging, I don't know how to cook, I can't do this. But the great thing about real food is that it can be so simple Mm. And I think, you know, when people learn that, they have this massive epiphany, which is so amazing because then they can turn it into their lifestyle. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to teach. You know, we don't want anyone to be doing anything for a short amount of time or it to be diet-like in nature. And, you know, real food, it does sound cliche coming from a nutritionist, but (laughs) I think a lifestyle and, you know, a long-term approach is so important. And that's what I love teaching people in the nutrition space. Yeah, it's so, and, you know, it's about flicking that switch. And I love the word you just said, epiphany. I so believe that in the work I do as well. It's just when you see people go, oh, my gosh, actually, I can do this. It's just the most beautiful thing. And to shift from this is going to be a one-month go-for-it situation and then I'll go back to my normal you know, 3 p.m. high sugar brownie and, and then realising, oh, actually, no, I feel better all the time this way. So this is going to be my all the time and the brownie might be something I have at someone's birthday or at Christmas and that's pretty much going to be it for that, you know. It's, yeah. And that 3.30 time I think is what's really exciting for a lot of people. Like, mm. you know, everyone I speak to, whether it's in clinic or in a seminar, I'll always ask, you know, do you experience 3.30-itis or hands up in the room who experiences 3.30-itis and everyone has a good chuckle but everybody puts their hand up. Yeah. And, you know, I think the reality is most people think it's normal or that it's just, you know, what they've got to deal with. But I love sharing with people that that experience is an absolute byproduct of your previous meal choices and that Mm. you can totally undo that. And, you know, with real food, there's so many amazing benefits. But one of the first benefits that people notice is how different they feel. Like they might not be able to use these words to explain it, but it's the blood sugar control and the satiety that you get from real food that doesn't lead to that crash and cravings at 3.30. And that's so life-changing for most Mm, absolutely. And something I've found, I'd love to get your opinion on this, is, you know, a lot of people, you know, switch to real food. So they're not eating like junk food and processed packaged foods that have, say, you know, preservatives or other man-made chemicals in there. But they're then moving to like a, a, a date-based bar or a like a a healthy vegan treat or, you know, things like these sorts of things. And then they're thinking, oh, because it's real food, 
I can have, you know, as much as I want of this stuff, but then they're still experiencing the 3 p.m. crash and, and not understanding why because they've made all these positive choices away from. But the reality is, is sugar is still one of the key players of overdoing it, whether it's from a, a processed packet food or something homemade, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, let's explore that a little bit more because at The Natural Nutritionist, we always talk about JERF, which stands for Just Eat Real Foods, but we have a unique LCHF or lower carbohydrate, higher fat approach. And, you know, this is exactly why, because mm. those treats that you mentioned are still treats. We don't, they shouldn't be everyday foods. And for some people, it can be hard to wrap their head around the fact that a, a raw treat is a treat, like when they would rather have, you know, a Cadbury's Mars bar. But in terms of the macronutrient breakdown, it's still high in carbohydrates and sugars. And as you said, it's still going to have that impact on your blood sugar. And sugar at the end of the day, whether it's natural or refined, in excess can have those negative effects, particularly those people that have, you know, poorer carbohydrate tolerance. Mm, interesting. That's definitely me. And uh, for me, that's PCOS related. And I just know for so many people as well, you just don't feel as good. I, I, I remember kind of really realizing it once when I love corn chips and guacamole. That would be like one of my favorite like treats if I was going to have something, you know, yummy that I probably shouldn't have every day, of course. Uh, and I don't. But when I do, I remember like a few years ago, practically falling asleep after this bowl of corn chips and just like I could not keep my eyes open and it was like I'd had this huge crash and yeah we, we call it the carbohydrate coma yeah carb coma exactly and once I got in touch with what that carb coma was and what it did to me I was able to really just kind of have a little look but you know I always approach things with curiosity rather than trepidation and just go oh, I wonder if I had like just one little roast potato in and amongst all my green veggies and meats and everything else on my plate would I be okay then and I am you know I love and uh, potatoes are gorgeous delicious and um, but it was about finding a level that worked for me rather than just the eat however much you want approach definitely need to yeah. watch my carbs so who do you think from everything that you've seen in clinic is there a type of body is there a type of build or height or medical condition or what are the common types of people you see that have um carb sensitivity yeah i mean to be honest the greatest factor is your previous diet so the clients that are coming in to see me or Elise at the Natural Nutritionist that are coming off a standard Australian diet consuming upwards of 600 grams of carbohydrates per day. 600? Will, what does yeah. 600 look like out of curiosity? In terms of examples of food, I mean, the, it's, yeah. it's, it's the 6 to 11 serves of whole grains per day yeah. that was in the conventional food pyramid prior to 2015 that, would look like 600 grams in yeah. total. So the six serves might come from, you know, the pasta, the two pieces of bread, the muesli bar, the cup of milk and the two pieces or the three pieces of fruit because people always often actually often overconsume fruit as well. Wow. And it's that sum total that slowly but surely decreases your carbohydrate tolerance. And, you know, the symptoms can manifest in many ways. Like certainly – 
it, the more carbohydrate intolerant you are, the less you burn fat. So for a lot of people, that can manifest in body compositional challenges. But we still meet lean people that have poor carbohydrate intolerance, but for them it's the really poor blood sugar control, the 330-itis and the hangries that they experience, you know, basically 24-7 with that hunger plus angry equation that we often joke about. Mm. Genetics play a big role because, you know, your blood sugar levels and your HbA1c, which is your glycated hemoglobin and the three-month trend of the sugars that are affecting your red blood cells, like that's genetic in nature, but for most people worsened by overconsuming carbohydrates and particularly refined carbohydrates. Right. And can you rehab from being carb sensitive to that degree because you ate so many carbs before? Can you actually rehabilitate yourself to tolerate them again? Yeah, I mean, obvious, sure. obviously never to the 600 gram a day, I, I can that's quite a shocking amount. But. Yeah, well, I guess like, you know, once someone learns about real food, they would never go back to 600 grams because their eyes have been opened to how refined our food pyramid was, was. and still is. Mm. But, yeah, that's the great news. Like what we work with in clinic is definitely a reset on carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance. And depending on the individual that can happen, you know, relatively easy or some people decide to do you know quite a strict two weeks and that will always depend on the individual as to what we decide is most effective but yeah I mean we use blood markers to identify that so with your blood sugar levels fasting in the morning if it's 5.5 or above you know you're heading towards pre-diabetes so any of our clients that have that high blood sugar level definitely need to go on the lower end of the lower carbohydrate spectrum, usually for eight weeks, 12 yeah. weeks maybe depending on on compliance, and then we'll retest their blood glucose levels and we can have a look at the improvements from changing their nutrition. Mm-hmm. And with the HbA1c that I mentioned, you know, it's, it's a pretty small reference range, but less than 5.3 is our goal. Anything towards six is again, pre-diabetes or diabetes. And so those pathology or that information that we gather from pathology is really important because I don't want to give everybody the same amount of carbohydrates. You know, that wouldn't make sense. That would actually go back to the food pyramid, which is essentially telling all of Australia to eat the same thing, which Mm. doesn't make any sense in my mind. So we can use these individual parameters to shape someone's nutrition and of course retest to have a look at how their their body is responding and continue to evolve their diet as their metabolism responds. Interesting Um, and I might just add here because I've been going through a bit of a personal journey um, after surgery last year I had two months straight where I could not sleep more than four or five hours a night it was a really terrible time that I'm just coming out of now, thank goodness. Uh, but what was so interesting was I'm always, I've always been between two and four on that um, on that particular marker that you just mentioned. And after just and I had had a blood test just because I have my annual blood test. End of September, I was a four, and that was like a little bit higher than my normal two three. But anyway, no one was too worried. Uh, but then by the end of November, it was actually first week of December. So just two months of bad sleep and I was a nine. For your blood glucose levels? Yep, resting. Wow. Fasting. That's fascinating. And I guess 
that's why we don't just talk about nutrition or carbohydrates, mm. right? Because there are so many factors like stress and sleep deprivation is huge from a stress point of view has, you know, huge implications on blood sugar control. Incredible. I was so shocked that it could happen in such a short period of time mm. and that people just get an extra hour's sleep. If you're finding that you have 3.30-itis, I reckon the first thing you should do is just go to bed a little bit earlier and yeah. see if that helps you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sleep resets all your appetite mechanisms mm. and if you're tired, you're really going to need carbohydrates. So then that vicious cycle continues. Exactly. So, yeah, really, really amazing stuff. And I was actually eating low carb throughout that entire time just because that's how I eat. So mm. it was it was clearly just the sleep for me that was the the factor. And yeah, I was I just I love sharing that with people now because it's just such a red flag in in the work that I will do moving forward to say how's your sleep? What's happening there? You know, yeah, absolutely. a health coach and you you obviously go into much more detail as a nutritionist in the one-on-one perspective. And I think everybody can can work on lifestyle in a in a broader sense to to make sure that we don't come up against these these challenges that's that's the best case scenario isn't it except for humans love to let the poop hit the fan before we do something that's our problem <laughs> we learn the hard way don't we mm. <laughs> we sure do oh my goodness so you meant you've obviously mentioned that lower carb and, and healthy fats is the approach that you guys use with clients. How did you come? Obviously, you've been a nutritionist for a while and specialising in in sports and movements and athletes specifically, which we'll go into a little bit later. But Steph, I would love to know when did you find LCHF as a as an idea, as a modality, as a way to approach better health for your clients and and. You know, like that would have been quite hard as a nutritionist, I'd imagine, to evolve your thinking past what you had always learnt to to realising that not everything we know is the truth, right? Was that an interesting journey for you? Yeah, so interesting. And I always tell this story, you know, I'll answer your first question in a moment, but in terms of the nutrition space, like the natural nutritionist has been around since 2011. And when I first started, I was a literal misbuster, like to try and convince somebody that an egg wouldn't give them high cholesterol and heart disease and that avocados wouldn't make them fat was a real battle. Like every client that was coming into my clinic was afraid of these natural whole foods because of one, the food pyramid, two, the low fat era. And, you know, three, the myth that we've been exposed to over the last five decades. Mm. Since 2011, and you would have seen this too, Alex, with the real food movement, that it's amazing the amount of change that we've seen in that space because now 95% of people I see are or at least aware of real food and wanting personal guidelines or support to, to make that change, but they're very across how fats are important or, you know, at least the evolution that we've seen away from demonizing these whole foods. So that Mm. journey has been fantastic actually because I love how savvy people are now. They're, They're empowering themselves with education and they're stepping away from that sort of dogmatic space that we had over the last 50 years? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's really cool to see. But from a personal journey point of view, like it's for me, it's, I actually think I've always known. Like I know that my 
experiences through my teens with a lot of, um, you know, eating challenges, disordered behaviours. I knew that I was always destined to, to help people learn from my journey, similar to, to your experience, Alex. Mm. But, you know, I think in terms of the LCHF, it was really because I knew that real food was the answer. And in my post-grad studies, I I actually found it really difficult back then, like as early as 2009, because you have to do these subjects, right? But for me, it was really challenging because the, the curriculum is still very textbook-based and unfortunately quite archaic in nature. But I just set myself the goal that I knew I needed those qualifications and that a lot of my teaching would be self-learning. So I had a lot of people that I, you know, learned from in the early days and particularly in the sports nutrition space with my mentors in, you know, Jeff Folek and Tim Noakes, people that have mm. been doing the research in this space for quite many, quite many years, quite a few years, um, and that we now know that research is certainly far in advance of the curriculum, which unfortunately hasn't been updated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, in sports nutrition space, I remember, you know, I've been doing triathlon for a long time now. I wish I actually remember what year I started, but it would be coming up to 10 years. Oh, wow. Congrats. Oh, thank you. And um, I remember one of the first long rides I did with a squad that I had joined and we were coming back from, you know, down the peninsula way and I was starting to feel quite tired and my coach at the time had handed me one of the sports gels. Like, oh, yeah. You have to have this. Like you won't get home if you don't take it. You must you must take this. And I was like, you know, quite young and naive and I was like obviously feeling really quite horrendous by that stage. So I took the gel and I was just like, what on earth is this? It was thick syrup, so sweet, so artificial. And I kept the packet and I remember reading it and thinking, I, I can't do this. Like I either have to find another way or I'm not going to be able to do triathlon if it means that, you know, for long course that you have to consume these really refined, horribly artificial and sweet sports gels. Mm. So I just made it my mission to find another way. And we ended up developing our own recipes that are all natural that athletes worldwide now use for their fueling. And I, you know, it became my mission to teach other people, um, other athletes, and certainly, you know, now we work with, you know, families and people that aren't necessarily triathletes, but that real food is the way and you don't have to follow the guidelines that we were told or taught over our lifespan. Mm, Very cool. Now, obviously, LCHF is a little bit different to... Can, can one be a vegetarian or a vegan and be LCHF? That's a good question, actually. Mm, I'm just thinking because there, there seem to be different pathways that work for different people. So I guess the question first is, do you believe in the work that you've done that different bodies, blood types, etc., respond to different types of diets? Or have you seen LCHF work as a broad diet for almost everyone you've worked with. So I do agree. I do think so because LCHF is not a defined number of grams or it's not right. a template. It's a spectrum. So it's, it, okay, great. Yeah, love that. Yeah, so we define LCHF as anywhere between 20 grams of carbs a day to 150 grams of carbs a day. And I'll talk about the proteins and fats next. But in terms of the main macronutrient that we manipulate, 
it's a very broad, broad spectrum. So we can mm. use the pathology markers that I mentioned earlier, blood glucose levels and HbA1c, to decide where someone sits on that spectrum. And for other factors such as genetics, health history or presence of illness or disease and activity levels will shape where that person sits. And that's really important because LCHF or low carbohydrate does not mean no carbohydrates. And that's where people mm. can get a little bit confused. Um, and LCHF isn't ketosis. So that's another important separation because we want people to be able to eat real food and essentially jerf just eat real food should equal lchf and it can when it's applied individually to the person based on those factors i just mentioned it's so interesting you said that it doesn't put you into ketosis because i think there are just so many assumptions out there with very basic knowledge and no digging um, that people have and then people share with other people and this is the age of internet confusion after all because I've been since my insulin sensitivity was found during this sleep pattern and I'm pretty sure it's on its way out already I can just feel it in my body it's it's no longer in the danger zone but at during that time it was very strictly leafy greens meats fats and that was pretty much it uh, day after day and some really um, citrusy uh, lime and lemon in, in water to just keep the alkalinity of my body happening. And uh, I was just sort of sharing it with a girlfriend who was pregnant and had had gestational diabetes last time and she really didn't want to head that way. And I said, well, why don't you just, you know, just try thinking about like half the grain, double the veg, like just as a simple basic measure and up your fats and see how that works for you, how you're feeling each day. And she's like, oh, no, my friend said I can't go into ketosis. <laughs> like I'm eating meat and veg every day and I use my fitness pal right. to just track um, because I just find it the easiest one to just punch in everything you've you've eaten and just keep check of those carbs, make sure I'm staying sort of around the 50 to 100 mark. And eating that way is a healthy 70 carbs a day or thereabouts. And, uh, and so it's still very low carb and, and, and excellent for what I'm trying to achieve, but it's certainly not, as you said, ketosis. So could you just share with us what exactly um, that looks like and, um, and why people might want to do that or might not want to do that yeah, for, for sure. their health reasons? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I will just clarify you know, LCHF can put you into ketosis, but you would need to be at the bottom end of the spectrum, most likely near 25 grams of carbohydrate. And that wouldn't apply to many people, but it can certainly work. Now, the the research around ketosis, which I think is really important to just to, to share, is yeah. that it's really efficient in the case of disease, like metabolic diseases or even for fighting some forms of cancer, but mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a state that, you know, you need to be in all year round. Essentially, yeah. when your body produces ketones, you're filling your brain with extra fuel, but some people, active you are, it can be certainly more challenging. Like if you're doing high intensity exercise, it's really important to be able to still burn fat, which is why we would put you on a lower carbohydrate template, but still be able to utilize carbohydrate to support high intensity. 
So the research mm. shows us that people that do ketosis long term, they actually lose the ability to utilize carbohydrates effectively. So what do you think happens if they ever stop ketosis? They find it right. really challenging. and it all goes it back can be, on, probably put on yeah. more weight than they ever had before, and then they're like, what, I've done all this amazing work. Yeah, and mm. for a lot of people, like ketosis does feel quite restrictive. Like I know it works for, for many, so I think that's excellent. But I try to be a little bit more balanced with my advice because I'm dealing with people that have, you know, quite busy lives. They, like, like they want to enjoy their food. They want to eat with their family socialize with their friends and I think that food is really important to to share and to nourish and to enjoy and not to enforce someone into any space they personally feel is too restrictive 100% and my athletes might do ketosis for one to two weeks as a bit of a kickstart if they're needing to really reset some carbohydrate intolerance catch up from the silly season or simply accelerate their body's ability to burn fat, which really, really helps our long course athletes. But most of them will do that during, you know, base training or recovery week and then start to introduce whole food carbohydrates as their intensity comes back into their program. And that's really important. Interesting. I love that. Okay. Thank you so much for demystifying that because I think a lot of people just assume that if they're cutting grains, they're going into ketosis Mm. and that is absolutely not the case because bounty of fruit and veg is going to give us carbs um, and whether you want or don't want based on the specific goals you have, some of which you mentioned there. Yeah. And there's just, there's one other point there because people get confused between ketosis and ketoacidosis. So ketoacidosis is high concentration of ketones, but it's when your body's in a really catabolic state. It can actually be quite fatal and it can sometimes mm. occur or most commonly occurs in type 1 diabetes when um, mm. the liver starts to break down fats and proteins and, it yeah, it can be really, really quite dangerous. But a very different situation or physiological state occurs when it's ketosis via carbohydrate and um, protein restriction. And it, it's not harmful. It's your body's burning ketones for fuel and certainly accessing fat stores. And I think that's where people can get a little bit confused because yes. a lot of uneducated people and certainly some professionals are guilty of looking at ketosis as being the same as ketoacidosis and then fear-mongering because of that. Mm, which is why it's just so important to pick your health professional that understands exactly what your goals and and nutritional needs are based on either a lifestyle goal and a a performance goal or a, a health requirement at that time in your life that really understands the difference right you know we can read all these things on the internet but if there's nothing that replaces amazing one-to-one care with someone who knows what they're talking about nothing yeah i totally agree Mm. Okay, so we touched on just briefly there um, how you prepare your athletes for things or recovering them from silly season <laughs> blowouts and, and stuff like that. So me, who does a couple of yoga sessions a week, a couple of weight sessions at the gym and then a good walk around the village that I live in every day at least once, uh, is everybody an athlete once you're doing some sort of physical activity or because I, I just, I guess I'm asking this because I can see people going, oh, that's, you know, Steph and she clearly works with like high performance, world-class athletes. So there's no way I could ever see someone like that. That's not for me. But isn't anyone who's exercising 
an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad you asked this question because we do have that barrier. You know, I work with a lot of endurance athletes. So someone that's perhaps in that comparison trap will think, oh, well, I'm nowhere near an athlete, you know, then I don't need to worry about my nutrition or I don't need to see Steph. And I think that's completely false. I mean, regardless of being an athlete, everybody needs to be eating real food. Like I hope that goes without saying. But in terms of your activity, like real food is as important as your daily movement. And you don't need to be mm-hmm. either racing or getting on the podium for that to be important. And it's yeah. absolutely nothing to do with how fast or, or slow you might think you are. Like I often get people contacting me and they'll say something on the lines of, oh, I'm doing my fast, um, my first half marathon, but it's going to take me two hours and 20 minutes. So I'm not really an athlete, but can I still help you? I'm like, you're doing a half marathon. Like, I think that's an amazing achievement in itself. And of course you need to be looking after your food and you will probably need to even talk to me about sports nutrition for that duration, depending on where your metabolism's at. So yeah, you're an athlete. I mean, even yogis are athletes like they have different requirements to endurance athletes but the food that you eat is the most powerful choice you'll ever make Mm. and it really you know the overall food and then where you sit underneath that will be relative to things like genetics health goals and activity levels and that's why we tailor things personally but ultimately yeah real food is for everybody yeah, beautiful. And depending on the different types of exercise people do, like a yogi who does their yoga practice every day, is there to be at the top of their game or feel the best about that activity compared to, say, someone who has a full-time job but exercises a lot and does a triathlon once a quarter? Is the nutrition different for those two people in terms of recommendation for them to both be at the top of their game for those two different things? Yeah, definitely. It'll be, okay. the, it'll be the real food umbrella. So we always say real food is food that comes out of the ground off a tree or from an animal and the latter is the personal preference, of course. But um, in terms mm. of how we shape that, there's a few things. Like in terms of the amount of food that you need like I don't often talk calories but ultimately we still need to get a handle of the volume of consume that we're a volume of food that we're consuming and if you're doing an hour of yoga then you do need less food than someone's doing two hours of running or four hours of cycling on the weekends so the volume will change according to output so calories relative Mm -hmm. to output but your carbohydrate intake will be relative to your intensity. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is that lower intensity activities should be fueled on fat. That's the perfect heart rate for your body to be able to oxidize fats for fuel. So if your exercise is lower intensity, you need lower amounts of carbohydrates. But for a CrossFit athlete or someone doing high-intensity interval training, And certainly for any of our aerobic-based athletes, when they do their speed or interval session, they need more carbohydrates. Mm. Food should actually be periodized over the week. The same would apply to you, Alex. Like your week sounds quite different. Like you might do a hardcore yoga class, like a really intense vinyasa flow, and then one day you might go for a long walk. Your requirement between those two days will differ quite a lot. 
And I think we make the mistake of expecting food to be black and white and that Mm. a meal plan for Monday will work for Friday. That is quite a big mistake. Like we should see ebbs and flows and that periodization relative to our output. And certainly when it comes to carbohydrates, that's relative to our intensity. Right. Cool. So when you're doing the slow, heavy, heavy weights at a much lower intensity, you could have a higher fat fueling day that day. But on that really sweaty, high intensity yoga class, um, eating a punnet of blueberries afterwards wouldn't be a bad thing because you're just you're just going to burn it all well, up. Well, you're anyway. actually Does, is that yeah, like you're going to be replenishing your muscle glycogen, and we like to prescribe carbohydrates mm. in that post-training meal because you know you're really going to have fantastic uptake of the carbohydrates and the those that fuel has a job to do, right? So it's going to be shuttled off for muscle glycogen replenishment, which is a part of the recovery process that we often forget about because we always hear protein, protein, yeah. protein post-training. Yeah, that's what yeah. you always hear. So are you saying, are you busting a myth here, Steph? Yeah, I totally am. I'm such a myth buster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. And based on what? Like what did you discover that made you rethink that? Oh, I don't think it was – I honestly think it was the industry because protein powders make mm. a lot of money. So, you know, we needed to be having protein powders in our handbags or our gym bags. Yeah. <laughs> and then people... I so remember that in my late 20s. Like, you know, you would just go and get one of those horrible – God, I can't even remember what the brand was. Probably good that we don't <laughs> mention a brand on the show. But um, like one of those poppers in the fridge. Oh, yeah, and the... it's like, oh, I'm doing the right yeah. thing for my body here. It was packed yeah. full of milk carbohydrates like lactose. <laughs> Oh I'm God. not saying protein no. powders don't have their place. Like I personally like to use a, you know, a beautiful grass-fed whey in a smoothie, but it's not by itself. Like you don't need just pure protein powder and you certainly don't mm. need protein powder and then to go home and have an omelette, right? That's just too much protein in that window. So the myth, I guess, is more that we've got to think about what other macronutrients we need post-training. So Yes, we want to be having carbohydrates, but I would never even suggest that you have fruit on its own because fruit is, is still sugar and you'll still get those yeah. and troughs and it won't sustain you. Whereas the food that you eat post-training should be a meal that, sustain you, that sustains you for four to five hours. So it's going to have lots okay. of non-starchy veggies, quality protein, good fats, and a small amount of whole food carbohydrate. So something like half to one cup of fruit, or a starchy, a veggie-like potato or sweet potato. Yeah. And that's our general okay. training well, guidelines. And so, and if someone had done something really uh, low intensity, what would that after-workout after meal be? I would still do like volume in terms of, say, two cups of non-starchy veggies, a serve of quality protein, so something that gives you about 20 grams, so mm-hmm. a palm-sized piece of animal protein or three eggs, and then some good fats, whether that be from, you know, avocado, nut seeds, olive oil, coconut cream. Two options would be good. Um, and so you're getting lots of good calories and nutrients, but it's a lower carbohydrate choice. Right. So you're basically skipping the cup of fruit after yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really, is this why little kids can eat a lot of fruit and just because they're go, 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 go all day? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And that's the thing. And I think... Mm. You know, it happens if you think about the example of elite athlete, for example, they eat X and they swim 10Ks a day and then they stop swimming 10Ks a day and they still eat X. Like, And so yeah. then we get into the problem. And kids, you know, fruit for kids is amazing. And, of course, we want to see fruit in their lunch boxes. But 
then we keep eating that as we're an adult and we sit at a desk for eight hours a day and we think we're doing the right thing. And of course we need two serves of fruit a day, but people eat like five serves and wonder why they're hungry and gaining weight. Mm, that's so interesting, isn't it? That move. And, you know, this was something that I realized uh, as I left school and university where I did lots of physical things as big tennis player, big into dance. And of course, it's all organized for you, right? When you're a kid and uh, or you're doing the musical theater production. So you're rehearsing three hours a day. And and I I remember just eating like a whole loaf of brioche, (laughs) just like being so healthy and 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 thin and feeling so fabulous. I could I could manage carbs really Mm. beautifully because of the huge output that I had. But then, of course, you go to working on the counter at David Jones, which is where I was working in the cosmetics department, never mind all the crazy toxins that you're exposed to there that were probably also stuffing around with my endocrine system and and metabolism. But I kept eating the same way. And, of course, that wasn't going to work because all of that activity largely ground to a halt until I realized I needed to organize the activity as an adult. It wasn't up to my school or my university anymore and I needed to get back into being physical. So I think it's, yeah, we don't want to change our food so that we can not be physical. Ideally there's, again, it's not black and white and we want that beautiful balance as we grow older. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Wow, so much good stuff. Okay, where to next? I, I know. I would love to ask you just as a general kind of uh, lifestyle choice, what are your favourite foods to recommend to people to feel more energetic? Because obviously sleep is something that we all need to just keep a check of and make sure we're getting whatever works for us, ideally seven to eight hours a night. But um, if our sleep is good but we're still a bit lacklustre, a bit low energy, what are some of your favourite things to recommend to clients to keep our energy, sort of to keep a, a sense of vitality? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, there's so many examples in terms of what we But, like, I think that vegetables for breakfast is probably the first goal because historically breakfast has been a fairly small meal and Mm -hmm. largely just full of refined carbohydrates. Whereas choosing a a recipe that allows you to include non-starchy veggies, whether it's a smoothie or an egg-based dish or a breakfast salad, has such an amazing effect on the rest of your day. So you might choose like, you know, some greens, which are our most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, like spinach or kale, and then get some beautiful colours in there, whether it's from, you know, tomatoes and capsicum. And that will be the best way to get an abundance of antioxidants, but really set up your day and totally transform your blood sugar control and your ongoing meal choices. Mm, I absolutely agree. I have eggs, leafy greens. Mm. Um, If I don't have eggs, I have some pate on seed, you know, those dehydrated seed crackers or something like that. And, yeah, at least three different colours of veg at breakfast, a little bit of goat's cheese sometimes. And I find that that just means I have no issue with knocking back whatever gets sent my way, you know, if it's a morning tea or I'm at a a launch event Mm -hmm. or something. I have no problem walking straight past anything sweet or carby in if I have that kind of a breakfast. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And for a lot of people, Mm. they're finally learning that food can keep them full. They're not needing a muffin or another coffee at 10 a.m. And probably Mm. for the first time in their life, 
it gets to about one yeah. o'clock and they're like, oh, okay, cool, I'll have lunch. Not like at 11.59, counting down the seconds until they can have <laughs> yeah. their next meal. Uh, so true. And I think it's just, you know, you mentioned industry when we talked about the protein shakes. Mm. And for me, industry has played such a huge part in the snack movement in general because mm. they realise that if they start pushing grains as, a, as an idea to increase – way back in the day of of starting that low-fat kind of movement in the 50s and 60s, then by doing that, well, what happens? They People need to eat like literally a couple of hours later and so they can give birth to the snack category to help people on the go, you know, and then after lunch it's the same thing. If you just have quite a carby kind of vacuous lunch, then what are you in two hours? You're hungry again. And Mm. so it just plays right into the profits of some seriously massive industry backdoor deals that have been done. You know, if you read Death by Pyramid, that's just one of the most Mm. fantastic books to wake up to just how much politics is behind the food that gets promoted to the general public. And Death uh, by Carbs as well is another good one because we're talking a lot about carbohydrates. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Death by Carbs, Death by Food Pyramid, Death by, Death by, Death by. And it says it all. Yeah, mm. and it's not to scare people and it's not to think you can't have a piece of toast with pate, you know, once or twice a week and enjoy every single bite. It's about what we do overall and I'm always such a big stickler for this that it is not this whole black and white carbs are evil because, you know, like mm. there's so much evidence to say that if you go too low carb and if you have a propensity towards anxiety, that can actually be really terrible for you. So. You are your number one health professional. We always know how we're feeling when we switch off all the mm. lights at night and we're staring up at a dark ceiling. That's the truth moment. And if you're feeling awesome, great. If you're not, please see someone and and really work to find what's going to be awesome for you and what that on that spectrum, what's going to be the perfect level for you based on what kind of movement you do, what kind of health goals you have. Uh, again, just so important, that one-on-one um, time, you know, we can read these books, but often if we don't have someone looking right at us and exactly, you know, asking a bazillion questions in an hour, which hardly ever happens in our modern, modern medical system, um, you know, it's it's such a gift to really be focused on for an hour. I just, I can't believe how many people will read things and do these online courses and and read the blogs and listen to the podcast, but still haven't actually ever seen a nutritionist or a naturopath. It's really quite amazing. And please, you know, if one thing comes from today is the curiosity has been awakened, the idea that, wow, okay, carbs are a pretty important thing to have a look at for me and where I should sit on that spectrum and, and maybe get around a blood test to see how my glucose levels are. Mm. And uh, and then see someone, you know, don't try and get it fixed with a blog post because you could quite quickly get led down the wrong path and spend months on supplements that aren't right for you and taking advice that isn't quite tailored to you. Uh, and I'm sure, Steph, have you seen this in your work where people come to you and go, yeah, but I've been paleo for two years and I've been doing X, Y and Z and I still feel crap or, you know, like have you had these all the time. Yeah, I thought you might because the age yeah. of the internet is so alluring that we might be able to fix all of our health problems on our own. And I just, you know, we haven't done three years of university study education to do that. So stands to reason that we could quickly get led down the wrong path. Yeah. And look, I think the benefits are that, as I said at the start, that people can be really savvy, but you've really got to think about being able to separate the fact from the marketing BS. And yeah. I think that's what's really hard to do because 
you know, supplements can be really or appear to be really attractive, for example. But we we basically, the only thing I would prescribe or the only two things I'd prescribe outside of looking at someone's pathology would be a simple magnesium and vitamin C powder. Mm. And just about everything else will come from looking at someone's pathology. Yeah, And I think that's the way that we need to move forward because otherwise, it is. It's it's the self prescription of unnecessary expenses, and and no ability to test. Like most supplements should also be relatively short term. That's why you'd repeat the blood test and have a look at how the body's going, and then see if you're ready to come off once you've made the lifestyle changes that, are, that then allow the absorption or the correction of the underlying pathology. Mm, absolutely. And that's a really intelligent way to look after your health. No guesswork. Test, don't guess is what I always say. <laughs> I know, I know. And and retest. You know, a lot of people, I've seen this so often, a, a test that maybe comes up with a negative result then becomes a part of that person's story and excuse making. Whereas if you actually do the work based on what that test provided you and retest, you can ditch that negative psychology that you've put on yourself. Oh, I'm X, so that's why everything I eat puts on weight or, you know, whatever. Like we can become excuse makers really quickly when we when we test and then don't do the right thing with the tests. Mm. So, yeah, the retesting is super important because then you can kick goals and measure and, and of course, always thinking about how you're feeling when I always use that example of when all the lights are off and you're staring up at the ceiling, how is today for you? You know, check in with yourself because that's going to probably be the most powerful thing you can do for your health. Yeah, I love that. Mm. So what are you working on now? I mean, obviously I've got everything in the show notes for everybody today about where they can find you and um, your gorgeous book and all of the work that you do. But is there something exciting coming up that you wanted to tell us about? Yeah, absolutely. So you are the first person that I've shared this with, Alex. Ooh, I'm excited. <laughs> Yay. hard on an online program for athletes. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be all about real food. Um, and there'll be a lot of education around all those lifestyle factors that we've been touching on, including gut health, holistic training, with plenty of resources and meal plans. And we've worked everything out in terms of requirements for carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, and how you can personalize that. Yeah. Um, and that's coming mid year. Awesome. So we'll definitely release information, you know, on thenaturalnutritionist.com.au and all our social media uh, channels. Um, Yeah, so definitely stay tuned for that, but it's going to be a very exciting year. Fantastic. Well, good luck with the program. Sounds awesome, especially based on what we've talked about today. And obviously not just for people cycling 10 hours on the weekend, but we're all athletes. If we're doing some form of activity, it's really important to become aware of what works for what style of activity. And I think that was one of my favorite messages from today, Steph. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having, you know, the roles reversed. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sure we'll see each other on one of our shows again later in the year. But until then, I will send everybody to the show notes and wish everyone a fantastic day. Thank you, Alex.
Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Pass.